Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Twanfield and we'll see them. What are you doing down here, you surely man? Uh, Owen, I like you and I like your style. Trying to be critical as well as being possible. It's a whole new way of doing journalism. It's brilliant. You don't have the balls. I said to him, you, you said to him, in a podcast. You said to him, this guy. Honestly, are we talking about this? Yeah, we are going to talk about it because we haven't talked about it before. And I think it's been five years and I think it's about time. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast, which doubles up today as the beginning of our fifth birthday celebrations. Happy birthday, Ken. Happy birthday, Owen. Happy birthday, Aaron. Happy birthday, Owen and Ken. Ken. Yeah, for five years, five full years, you've been listening to Ken hammering Jose Mourinho, Brendan Rogers. Sergio Ramos, Mike Ashley, and any other football figure who had it coming to them. Isn't that right, Ken? A huge thank you to every one of you listening today for being part of this adventure over the last five years, both to the Monday-only crew who have been keeping us at the top of the iTunes charts, and especially to those of you who have been good enough to back us in the first year of the World Service. We love you all, but those are mere words. I know you need to see our love in action somehow. Of course. And that's why we put together a special once-off series of interviews over the next month that we think you're going to like very, very much. We wanted to meet a bunch of brilliant people across a range of disciplines, trying to take it outside sport in a lot of cases. So throughout the rest of the month of March, exclusively for World Service members only, we'll have five big interviews for our fifth birthday. Mm. All hugely interesting, hugely talented people. All of them really with a serious independent spirit, which you all know we like around this neck of the woods. And the five interviews and questions are, guys... Go on then, on One of the world's great filmmakers, Ken Loach... Australian rugby head coach and maybe the next Irish head coach if we point him <laughs> in that direction. <laughs> if Joe Schmidt continues to flounder. Michael Checker. Yes. Uh, yeah, you, no, I'm, I'm not writing Joe Schmidt. Uh, listen, Good let, start let, the me, let me continue to <laughs> announce these. So, okay, we've got Michael Checker, we've got Ken Loach, we've got Lynn Cox, who swam from the US to the Soviet Union in the 1980s to ease Cold War tensions. One of the great sports writers, Paul Kimmage, will be plonking himself down in Richie Sadler's player's chair. 
which I'm particularly interested in. And first up, in his first sit-down interview since retiring last year, a giant of Irish media, the giant of Irish media, the great Vincent Brown joins us in studio on the World Service for an interview we absolutely love and that you can hear on tomorrow's show. Here's a bit of a test. One of the downsides of being, of being the editor to almost every journalist in Ireland at some point is, um, you know, we could talk to people who'd worked with you and they all, they all kind of say the same thing. They all say that they think you're brilliant and then they, they also say that there were times when things got heated in the office. So? And anyway, what's this got to do with what we're talking about? There's a question of... of did, like, I, did, I, did I behave violently, uh, either verbally or otherwise, to people? And did I cause harm? Uh, I, certainly, I, I certainly acknowledge that I caused hurt, uh, and wrongly so. And, uh, and that's a fault on uh, me, and that's it. And, yeah, <laughs> if that's what you want me to acknowledge, well, that's fine, yeah. Well, I, I wonder, is it, is it a fault... Um, do, oh, you, do yes. you, you see it as such? Because oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there you go. That's Vincent Brown. Just a little snippet for you. We will be playing the full interview tomorrow as the first of our series of five interviews. And not only that, but we will have a very special live show surprise that we're going to be offering to World Service members on tomorrow's pod as well. Mm. Use on that to come. So this is the kind of stuff you'll be hearing if you sign up to the World Service now. A fiver a month, folks. One single fiver. We'll get you interviews with Ken Loach, Paul Kimmage, Lynn Cox, Vincent Brown and Michael Checker. Yeah, come on, people. Come on, sign up now, secondcaptains.com and join the party. And for myself, Ken, Murph, Simon and Mark, thank you again for being so supportive of the work that we've been doing over the past five years. Five years, lads, and as the time has gone on, it's great because I hardly ever get asked by taxi drivers anymore, hey, why did you lads <laughs> leave News Talk? <laughs> hardly ever. You still get it a bit, though. I mean, if my uh, personal experience is that thing to go back Still do then. get that bit, all right. As for today's show, we're going to be taking one of our occasional leaps into the world of the football-based novel. It's a genre that has produced mixed results over the years. Saturday, Bloody Saturday is Alistair Campbell's effort at a football thriller. (laughs) You're laughing already, Merv. Wait until you hear the thing reviewed, will you? Sorry, accidental partridge there. Yeah, Campbell wrote it with the ex-Burnley striker Paul Fletcher. So we'll hear from Seamus O'Reilly about um, just how successful or otherwise this effort was. Seamus has done some book reviewing with us in the past, Ken. Yeah. Steve Bruce, the Steve Bruce novels, isn't it? He wrote uh, a trilogy of celebrated reviews of um, <laughs> Steve Bruce's celebrated trilogy of football novels. He's probably the the, the foremost, the foremost in the world. Thriller. Well, no, I mean, the, the foremost student of Steve Bruce's. Oh, that's true. Yeah, we're moving away writings. from Steve Bruce. Well, there's, yeah. no pro- there's no probably about it. <laughs> <laughs> he is the undisputed. Yeah. Got a tweet in here from Cahill Mullen. Can't wait to until Monday to listen to Ken paying some much overdue respect to who, Ken? Yes, Ken, Jose Mourinho and his tactical masterclass on Saturday. Credit where credit is due, Ken. Great political podcast on Friday, by the way, that comes in from Cahill. Why don't you deal with that one in your report on sport? Credit where credit is due, tactical masterclass. Oh, God. Well, look, obviously I'm like a broken record when it comes to this. But So let's solicit some... Let's solicit... Let's solicit... Some opinions, mm-hmm. right? Let's do let's do like a focus group here, okay? With a with an unschooled, uh, you know, a, ge- a member of the general public, Kieran Murphy. Hello, hello, kid. What did you make of it, Kieran? Did you were you did you think? Yeah, this is good. Great, great. Did you think? Tell you one thing about Jose Mourinho, he knows how to put on a tactical masterclass. Mm. Did you? Uh, I thought United looked like they believed in what they were being asked to do, and Rashford finished his two. Rashford finished his two goals really well. 
And, you know, it kind of gets to that situation where, you know, Lukaku scores that really easy chance in Anfield, uh, the one-on-one that he has. You know, hold on for a one-nil. You know, football is a strange game in that the ability of one player to finish a chance, which is kind of a hat. Like, Rashford, when he gets the ball for the first goal, not every player finishes that, gets a goal from that position. Very few, actually, really. Mm. And that changes the whole perspective of the game. All of a sudden, United holding on to what they have is not a nil-all bore fest. It's a gritty one-nil victory. And then they go and get the second goal. The second half was pretty pretty terrible, I would say, from Manchester United's perspective. Mm. Uh, when Liverpool come to Old Trafford and are that dominant. Mm. Sorry, is, is Joe Public talking a little too much here? No, no, it's, it's, it's fine. It's nice to see Joe Public finally take flight here. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, say something. Speak up for himself. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's, I mean, I, I, we're, are Manchester United fans saying, wow, what a performance. We're back. We can win the league next year playing like this. <laughs> are they? I don't know. I don't think do so. Do you think so? Do you think so? No. Well, well, I, well, I'll tell you, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think it's ever going to happen playing this type of this type of stuff. And this is what we see in all the games. Now, that doesn't mean they don't win these games. They beat Tottenham. With the the same goal, it only took one to beat Tottenham, but it was the same idea, uh, and and again it was a similar a similar type of pattern to the game. You know, where where Tottenham uh, controlled a lot of the game, and Manchester United beat them with a, a you know a Lukaku flick on De Gea punted Lukaku flick on and a nice finish. Um, I just think this is. I mean, I, I didn't. I didn't bother writing about it because it's like, okay, I've said the same. I've said the same thing a hundred times, and here's a here's a demonstration of what I'm talking about. Now, it's like there's this idea that the result is all important. The result is not all important. The result pretty important. The result decides where the three points go in the day, but the performance really is what it's about in terms of is this a Manchester United team that's going anywhere? You're focusing on the rudimentary attacking play, right? But what about the I'm focusing, what about the fact that what about the fact that uh, Every time they recently have come up against this Jurgen Klopp attacking juggernaut, they've been the one team that seems to be able to handle them. And I don't quite agree with the tactical masterclass analysis of some of the other games. You know, the nil-all. Getting a nil-all draw, I don't know how how much that should be lauded. Um, particularly, there was... What was this season or last season? They played Liverpool and Liverpool were on a little bit of a bad run and everyone seemed delighted to take a nil-nil earlier, draw. It was earlier this season when, with, yeah, when which Liverpool I thought was were on a, a bad run. Yeah, which I thought was a little strange. I thought, why not go and try, try and beat them? But this time, they have beaten them. Mm. Um, again, they've kind of blunted Liverpool's attacking edge to a certain extent. Mm. And certainly that side of it needs to be applauded. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there are good things about the... Uh, here. Here's what I would say are the good things. Um in terms of what Mourinho brought to the game. Number one, f- isolating or, or finding a a weakness, which was then exploited really... Lovren being the weakness? Really, really. Well, Lovren being, Lovren being a weakness and then the the link between Lovren and Emery Chan and Trent Alexander-Arnold being another weakness, as in... There's, those players maybe are supposed to be linked together defensively, but maybe they won't be if we put them in certain situations. And so approved. So what he what what he's got is he sent out a team with a with a quite specific game plan, and two goals have resulted from it in the first what twenty twenty five minutes twenty minutes. So from a from a tactical point of view, that's 
that's definitely a win. That's a there you go, Carl. There you go, Carl Mullen. You've got finally kind of saluted the tactical master. I mean, he, ha- he hammered this weak point and it and it collapsed. I mean, it's interesting to see how bad most footballers are now at playing against this type of football. It's like so archaic. They don't come up against it like this. This would have been just uh, simply headed go go back to the nineties and uh, sort of more pudgy uh, central defenders with overhanging paunches would have headed these balls away or the midfielders would have been backing in, you know, and it would have been probably dealt with easily enough. Uh, but it's like these players have no idea what to do when confronted with a the team that plays long balls and uh, flick on. So maybe there is maybe there is that. The fact that no other top team plays this way is a certain, well, a kind of, there's a kind of a back to the future, no one's used to our tactics kind of a thing. Well, you know, at least until... Until they figure out that that's what you're going to do in these games, it's oh, like never throwing out your fur coat, Ken. It's always going to come back into fashion. It will always come back. <laughs> do people say that about fur coats? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think yeah. I mean, the issue of people wearing fur coats is maybe more of an ethical animal rights well, full, kind of an issue full than fur a, or real fur, whatever. Yeah, you know, I mean, you can get away with again uh, on. No one expects you to be wearing real fur. No one does it. Therefore, your real fur will go unnoticed. And the other, the other thing... Not that, by everyone, I'll th- tell you that. ...that has to be mentioned, as, as you mentioned, Owen, that uh, they, did, uh, they did stop Liverpool scoring. They particularly stopped Salah from doing anything really well, most, mostly legally. And it was, you know, given how Salah's been scoring all the time, this is pretty good. But I would disagree that, you know, they're the only team to have stopped... Um, to stop this Liverpool attacking juggernaut. I mean, a few teams have done it. You know, West Brom. They're, but they're doing it, they are doing it consistently. Manchester United. Yeah. Yeah, but they're doing so by sacrificing almost everything in the game. I mean, okay, so it works out for them. It, it works out in the sense that they score two goals, you know, balls bounce their way, balls deflect in their way. Well, not the first goal, in fairness. And the second goal was lucky, but the first goal was good. Yeah, I mean, the first, the first goal first goal was an immaculate uh, execution by Rashford, particularly, you know, speed, grace, power, all of the opposite things of Lovren, I would say. Um, second one, you know, a, a bit of good fortune, a couple of bouncing balls go their way. I mean, sometimes the ball bounces your way. It's, it's the nature of the game. You know, uh, Fellaini was brought on to shore it up. Rashford came off. There was a bit of booing for that decision because I think the, cra- the crowd recognized that they were sacrificing a lot of the remaining counter-attacking potential on the field. They would have liked to see the team score another goal to put the game beyond there. But Fellaini comes on, I, I thought specifically to counter the fact that Liverpool were getting a lot of corners and maybe Van Dijk was going to head one in at some point. And Fellaini was there to try and stop that happening. Of course, a few minutes later, Fellaini gives away what should have been a penalty. Now, where's your tactical masterclass if the referee decides to whistle for this penalty? You know? You need a bit of luck as well. Yeah, you need a lot of luck. Is what I'm saying. Now, you need if you're gonna if you're gonna win a lot of matches at the top level. This, if you're gonna win titles playing this way, you're gonna need to be unbelievably lucky. No team has ever been this lucky, which is why I'm saying I don't see it happening. Sorry, Carl. I tried my best. Uh, I mean, the bad the bad things about because I've mentioned okay, I've mentioned okay. the good things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seeding the entire second half to yeah. your opponents. Like, why is it that when you're two 0 up? Then, then you you kind of say game over now. It's like what's the thing they do in cricket? It's like declare, you, you yeah, you declare it, and that's what they did. Yeah, loads of teams do that as well. I, mm. I agree with you. I don't see why you, you you play any differently when you're tuning it up. But it's one of why do you play differently away from home than at home? You know, really, there shouldn't be a reason for it, but clearly there is a psychological reason for it. 
yeah, it's 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 a it's a problem uh, that the manager has of it being all about him. I mean, you know, I find it I find it tiresome and tedious. You know, like Mourinho always always says, um, you know, for instance, after the Europa League, uh, it's like. Remember the Europa League final, and then he did the coaching seminar with the kids in Scandinavia or something, and he, and he laid out all the reasons why he had won the Europa League final. And the main thing, and the main, and the main thing that that you that you will keep coming back to at Mourinho is don't give them what they want. What they want for us is that if they want us to play the ball through midfield, through the middle of of midfield, that's where they're good at, at winning the ball back. Let's not do that. I'm gonna not play. I'm gonna play to their weaknesses. I'm gonna, you know, we'll we'll fire a few long balls. We'll see how they deal with that. I'm not gonna put. I'm not gonna put the ball in areas of the field where they can press. I'm not gonna give them what they want. This is his whole philosophy. It's like, uh, it's what it is. Is it's like you know the art of war. You know the art of war, Sun Tzu. Mm-hmm. The art of war. Uh, the the uh, ancient Chinese military strategist. And it's like this book it's is just all- a big. Twitter thread, though, from what I can read. Well, so the art of war. The art of just war. Pithy one sentence remarks. Yeah. You know, I have to, listen. It's a bit tangential, Ken. Maybe I'll just let you keep going there. But the art of war, you know, is is deception. Um, it's all, war is all about deceiving the opponent. You know, if he expects one thing, make another thing happen. You know, if he wa- what uh, the ancients called a clever fighter is one not only who wins but excels in winning with ease. He who is prudent and lies in wait for an enemy who is not will be victorious, etc., uh, etc. Et the whole secret lies in confusing the enemy so that he cannot fathom our real intent. Uh, the expert in battle moves the enemy and is not moved by him. Well, what better, what better way of what better one-line match report of Inter's one-nil defeat at Barcelona, uh, which sent them through to the Champions League final in 2010, is not moved by him. Supreme excellence consists of breaking the enemy's resistance resistance without fighting, or indeed playing football. Um, the point about it is that Mourinho applies these kinds of things to the football field. There's one important reason why this is a bad idea. It's not actually war. It's a game. The whole point about the, di- the difference between war and a game is that in war, nobody really knows what's going on. There's a whole lot of intangible variables. There's a lot of, you know, what Donald Rumsfeld used to call uh, unknown unknowns. Known unknowns and unknown unknowns. Right? Whereas with a football game, there's 22 players. Everybody can see who's where and what's going on out there. It's, it's transparent. There are rules. You know, most of the time the rules are enforced. You can get away with a certain amount if you're lucky, but generally you have to kind of expect them to be enforced. Therefore, it's different. It's not like, it doesn't have this whole element of deception, lie low. There is nowhere to lie low. Mm. It's a game. Go out there and, you know, play the game. There are, there are no ideas. There are no ideas with this. I mean, it's just... it's just. Look, the West Brom beat Liverpool with a similar type of thing. You know, the difference between West Brom and Manchester United, Manchester United have better players. Because if they had players of the quality of West Brom, they'd be down where West Brom are, playing this way. They wouldn't be in mid-table. They wouldn't be, you know, impressing anybody. It wouldn't be like, oh, this young manager, Jose Mourinho at West Brom is doing really well. He's in line for big club. It wouldn't. It'd be like, why does it always have to be a foreign manager? That's where he'd be at. So, you know, that's that's what I'm saying. But, you know, you've heard it before. And as I said, I'm like a broken record. Um, where do you want to go? Well, let's get let's get onto the motorway after the game, shall we? Oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. What'd you make of this? Jamie Carragher. Oh, my God. So, Jamie Carragher... 
if anyone hasn't seen the video, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people will have seen the video at this stage. It's recorded by a man who's sitting in the car and he's and he's pointing his phone at the window or, you know, to where Jamie Carragher is driving along in an adjacent car. And there's a girl also there. I don't think you see her at any point, but you can hear her saying things like, Dad, stop it, stop it. And the dad, her dad, is <laughs> is saying things like, ah, great result there, J- uh, Jamie Carragher. Unlucky lad, this kind of stuff. And uh, Carragher, uh, what you essentially see is him he, he's rolling down the window and as though he's going to say something. And then suddenly, Gobbs, have you not seen it? I've seen it. Oh, you've seen it. Gobbs, the most copious quantity I, I, of saliva. I, I couldn't believe that he could call up that amount of saliva so readily. Unless he was saving it up for a bit, like slushing it around in his mouth, trying to, trying to get some more. Because it was an unbelievable quantity of saliva. Now, I've seen a lot of people spitting. I mean, if you watch football, you see it, what, 70 or 80 times a match. Mm. But I've, I honestly can't, I can't believe the amount he was able to produce. Uh, and, uh, well, not too good. Not too good at all. It was dis- disgusting. And it was disgraceful by Carragher. And I have to say that I, we're assuming that that girl is a daughter. It is a daughter of... of yes. Right? She's yeah. the only person who emerges from that this video with uh, her dignity intact. Yeah. Um, as you're saying, she's telling her dad to stop it, stop video and stop... Like, I've, stop I've being been, a dick, dad. And the dad is... Oh, I don't know what the right term is here, but he seems to be exulting in the fact that Jamie Carragher is just spat at his at him and his daughter um, which is absolutely bizarre like the whole thing the whole the whole thing is just disgusting well he's he's successfully trolled Carragher into uh, something which is mm. which is news headlines all across you know <laughs> I mean everywhere Jamie Carragher's on TV people are like have you seen this should they sack him what do you think focus group how I just cannot understand how he could lose control like that I mean the how I can't think it, it, of anything that anyone could say to me. But particularly when it's just a generic, oh, yeah. two nil lad, you know. And I don't know, Carragher seemed to make um, some sort of play on the fact that the guy had two or three. So the way you watch the video, it seems as though the fella has just discovered Carragher's there and then starts videoing. I think Carragher seems to be insinuating that maybe. Well, Carragher said, totally, I've ordered, I've apologized personally to all the family this evening. I was goaded three or four times along the motorway while being filmed and lost my ride. So I don't know if he means he was being goaded by that same person. Oh, well, I assume so. You can't just, like, spit at the fourth person who goads you. You know, I mean, mean, come on. It must be the the same person, right? Uh, Judging, by the way, he he said that. But my point is, regardless, it's completely unacceptable, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it's just so surprising that somebody. How can he be that wound up by. How unhealthy is his obsession with Liverpool Football Club if being goaded over a result in their match creates, provokes that sort of reaction in a guy who seems to generally be quite a mild-mannered, well-regarded professional pundit? Well, I would say, actually, that it's not... uh, It's not um, like a... Uh, what was the word that you used about his obsession obsession with Liverpool? Yeah, it's almost an unhealthy. Like, how could that be so hurt so badly or make him so angry? It's not that though. It's the goad. It's the personal goading towards him. So he. It's him being insulted that has annoyed him, rather than Liverpool losing two one to Manchester United. I think that the reason that he reacts like that has to do with him, with, with him being angry for this guy winding him up on a personal level. Like that's that's rather than because if you if you watch him talking about the game, I mean he's 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 fully capable of speaking about it in a detached or disinterested manner. Even though you you know that he clearly wants Liverpool to win the game, I don't think that he's you know 
I don't, I don't think th- this colours his commentary in the manner of, say, you know, John Aldridge. Okay, okay. When John Aldridge was, was commenting, you know, on uh, uh, on Liverpool matches, he's often doing so when, uh, for Liverpool kind of city radio, mm. Radio City. And the biases. He's there for yeah, for yeah. that bias. So so it's not really a fair comparison. I think that Carragher is capable of being, of, of being. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, but but the reason that he gets angry there is, I think, taking offence at, at being personally abused. But the question is now, what's going to happen to him? I mean, it's it's like, does this photograph, I mean, there's a couple of photographs, still photos of Cargo, one per, when he's just preparing to spit, and the other when the gob of spit is like exploding out of his mouth that just are like so iconic. Oh, they're iconic snaps. I mean, and then you've got you've got to take into account the, the, uh, the shame, the shame that he brings on the people of Liverpool. By pro- by proxy, you know, it's not quite like crushing a little, but like it's still got like more views. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so it's it's pretty bad. I mean, I, I don't know. And, and and I've been talking to various friends about this. One of them's like, oh, he, he's they've got to sack him, right? I'm thinking, are you serious? Do you think so? Well, I mean, people have been sacked for less. I would say. What would you do if you were running Sky? I don't know. I don't I I don't know, but I do know people it it's one of those things where if Jamie Carragher was on the way out as a pundit anyway, this is a perfectly nice excuse to get rid of him. Yeah. But if they place a lot of value in Jamie Carragher, which they very much seem to do, and he's an excellent pundit, I think that could sway the decision making process there and they might have to they they might feel like we're gonna back this guy. Yeah. I I actually uh, I, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And the thing is that the character is probably is one of the best things on Sky. Hmm. You know? So I think they might say well, if I rather I should say I don't know what I don't know what they'll do, hmm. but if I was running Sky, I might be tempted to say no, no, this is this is terrible behavior. You know, you, you're going to have to do some kind of rehabilitation. So <laughs> you you're going to have to do some kind of humiliating re-education. Yeah, but you know, I'm and, kind of and please, please try not to do yeah. this again. Yeah. Sky could come out with something by the time people are listening to this as well. So yeah. we are recording. I am, this yeah, I am a little annoyed that I can't separate the fact that I think Jamie Carragher is very good on television and is a very good analyst from what the right thing to do is when someone spits at someone on a motorway. You know, yeah. I'm like, if this is one of the other pundits who I think are terrible, I mean, if this is Jamie Redknapp, for instance. I'm like, get him out of there, you know. Yeah. It's like, you know, th- that's what that's what this is all about, basically. But again, like, it's, it's just like, like he he greatly adds to my enjoyment of watching television on or football on television. Yeah, like I think he's I think he's excellent. Therefore, terrible behavior needs to be uh, viewed only through the lens of whether I think this guy is actually really well. Good I think it's also that that as a pundit, he's very likable as well. Yeah. You know, some people are very good pundits, but they're polar. They, you, you might necessarily warm to them, whereas I think people do warm to Carragher. He does, and I probably shouldn't be making him out to be some sort of pacifist in the way I described him earlier on as being a very calm pundit. I mean, he's a guy who threw a coin at an Arsenal fan. Yeah, back at an Arsenal fan. Yeah. Uh, in the direction uh, in his playing days, he you know he, he wasn't exactly mild mannered on the pitch, but he has developed into this very kind of gregarious, affable and and sharp presence. So I think that's what we're saying. But that should you're right. That shouldn't actually excuse. Of course, it doesn't excuse what he did. 
should yeah. it mitigate what, what he did? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, it mitigates know. or it changes my opinion on it, which is, is there, annoying to me. Is there also an argument that... And he apologised straight away is the other thing. Yeah, if you're talking about mitigating circumstances yeah. or whatever, although he couldn't do much else, uh, yeah. to be fair. No, although he has... He, there's another quote from him today. I saw this quote in the Guardian. I'll speak to the family again. I'm sorry, I'll apologise again today properly asked if he had seen the girl in the car he replied I didn't to be honest she was lent back I wish she wasn't involved I hate that she was involved more than anything Mm. Uh, it is a terrible pity uh, that I spat in the direction of this girl and I am deeply sorry for spitting at this girl Um, no it it is it's terrible again though is is there a question of of what uh, of whether what something that happens outside the workplace this type of thing is uh should be relevant to... Well, of course. I mean, if you murder somebody. Yeah. Um, people are obviously getting stuck in on either side uh, of this. Um, some people want Cargill sacked. Others, you know, and it's and it just plugs into every... And, and that's what's so frustrating. It's so like, annoying oh about it. Oh, yeah. God. Like, can you, can you just make a decision on what you think yourself without, you know, at Total Man United? <laughs> you know, do you, can you make a decision on whether you think this is right or wrong? Without, you know, bringing in the fact that Jamie Carragher hasn't won a league title or something. Yeah. It's just so <laughs> pathetic. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, someone else, uh, another friend of mine says, uh, uh, Klopp's, Kloppo's ads always seem to involve a child showing him disrespect while he's out driving. <laughs> These ads would be better if he didn't just laugh it off. But um, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how things go um, with, uh, with that. Um, so what else is going on? Well, West Ham, Owen. Mm. I mean, this was this was amazing stuff. Um, so, just just seeing what happened with the pitch invaders, you know, there was there was like four people I think altogether who who got on the pitch. There was there was one guy that Mark Noble sort of tried to throw off the pitch personally, and Mark Mark Noble gave an interview afterwards saying, "Yeah, when someone threatens me, I'm going to defend myself." And actually, if you look at the video, he ran over the guy and grabbed him and threw him on the ground. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't actually see the guy was threatening him, but you know, that's what he's. The guy shouldn't have been on the pitch. Absolutely. Yeah. A couple more guys come on. Another guy comes on, then waving the corner flag over his head. You know, very slowly, and then sort of tries to put it in the ground. Can't quite get it in there. You know, it was it was a pitiful sight. The lads who came on the pitch, uh, there was two of them sort of together, ended up coming off, and they were being booed and cheered by the fans at the same time. And then when they got into the crowd, they were they were assaulted by people, you know, throwing mudges at them. So it's like I don't even know what the crowd made of this. Yeah. Some of them, I think, were happy that the protests were being registered. Some of them were unhappy that the game was being disturbed. Some of them just took the opportunity to to uh, lash out themselves. Then all the people surrounded the director's box. This is obviously not the first time this has happened to David uh, Gold and David Sullivan. This happened to them at Birmingham City uh, more than once. Um, And the crowd are chanting, get out of our club, you've destroyed us, we're not West Ham anymore. Uh, And meanwhile, the team is going down spectacularly in a game that they had actually kind of been doing better in. They concede the first goal in, I think, 66 minutes, second goal around 70 minutes. Joe Hart then throws one in for, for 3-0 at home to Burnley. Um, amazing. I mean, what a mess. What a joke. It's amazing how quickly it's happened. It's, it seems like only yesterday, Ken, that I was watching the rather bizarre closing ceremony, if you want to call it that, at the bowling ground, which they suddenly started calling Upton Park yeah. towards the end. All these ex 
legendary players getting out of London cabs in the middle of the pitch. And it was, it was all so nicey-nicey. And now the atmosphere has gone to complete... Well, it's very you know, bad. I mean, you know, what, what, why has this happened? I suppose they don't really have a they don't really have a team that fits together in any um, intelligible way. Um, whenever they sign a good player, and I mean, I can think of a couple that they've signed in recent years: Payet, most obviously, and Andre Ayew. Although Ayew never played well for them, Payet played brilliantly for them, but then left, and Ayew also left. Did they both actually boomerang back to the clubs they bought? Yeah, both. It's interesting, isn't it? Payet went to Payet went back to Marseille, and IU went back to Swansea. These players um, have played well only only briefly. Most of the signings don't work out, and because they're all signed by managers with quite different interpretations. I mean, Sullivan Gold have done this thing where this this thing you see quite a lot in football from people who decision makers who don't know what they're really doing is that they make they appoint a they appoint a coach and then they appoint the opposite coach to that coach and then they appoint the opposite coach again when that when the next coach doesn't work out and then they again appoint the opposite coach so they just keep doing this Avram Grant Sam Allardyce Slavin sexy Slavin Bilic and then resolutely unsexy David Moyes you know what I mean it's it's like uh, they're just oh you know what there's no plan there's no there's no uh, there's no there's nothing at the club when you look at it it's like everything is sort of geared towards the business side of the club it's a problem that a few clubs have but West Ham to a, to an extraordinary extent I think that there's no there, there is no sort of permanent there's no institutional memory on the football side let's say it's just bring in a manager and his people get rid of that manager and his people bring in another manager and, and his people get rid of that manager and there's there's no continuity so you let, you're left with the squad. Like, Moyes is looking at this squad. It's not Moyes' fault, the situation they're in, I don't think. I mean, you could argue about whether another manager might, you know, have a better chance of whipping the team up to some kind of a pitch of, you know, maybe Moyes is a little... You know, when he when he comes in and looks at everybody with those, you know, kind of lugubrious eyes and says, we're all fighting for our jobs here we don't play better none of us will be here next season yeah he's not a positive he doesn't appear to be a positive vibes man but it might take more than a positive vibes man to turn this around yeah i have i do have a bit of sympathy for him in this in this situation um the the one thing that is going very well for west ham is the asset value you know in terms of uh, when david Silva and david gold bought west ham in 2010 or when they took over because they, they only bought about half the club at first then it was worth it was it was reckoned to be worth 105 million and that's what their deal to buy half it valued the club at 105 million now it's like 600 million or at least uh, Sullivan says that he's turned down 600 million for it from Red Bull and that's what the Sunday Times rich list reckoned it was worth so from that point of view things have gone really really well it's just all the other things it's just all the things that affect everybody at West Ham who, who isn't either David Sullivan, David Gold, or one of their kind of people who run the club on their behalf that it hasn't worked out well for. Um, there was the thing that happened in Greece. And so, I mean, there was also pitch invasion there the, between the, um, this is the match between Pauk, Salonika, and AK Athens. And so... Um, I don't want to take your punchline here, Ken, but the owner came on with a gun or something? Yes. The t- well, the there t- you go. That's a, sorry. I've just killed the story. <laughs> the t- the <laughs> I'm team. taking the key detail. Anything else, kid? Uh, no. Pauk Slanka scored a, scored a goal Over in the last minute, again. which was disallowed for offside. And um, so it was disallowed for offside. And then then the David Sullivan of Pauk Slanka <laughs> ran onto the field and uh, confronted the referee with a gun prominently displayed in a, in a hip holster. 
<laughs> ordered his team off the field. The other team, AK, ran off the field because they were afraid for their lives. And He's the president, the PAOK president, uh, Ivan Savidis. And the club say that he was protecting the club. Well, he was, I mean, I don't know if he dictated that statement uh, or at gunpoint or what, Like, but I'm not surprised the club were putting that out. But I think, think he may end up getting... players say, well, we should have also had guns, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So he may he may end up uh, being being fined for that one now or points deducted or something. Imagine so, okay. That's mm. it for today's report on sports. Never forget the true nature of this city. Listen, you screwheads. Here's a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum, the dogs, the filth. Here is someone who stood up. And this bike, by the way, I'd only had for two weeks. What happened to it? Dublin happened to it. Dublin has kicked the shit out of the bike. There was a few minutes when I blithely believed that I lived in a civilized city. I arrived home. It was already dark. There was rain and mud everywhere. Oh my god, this town! So I thought to myself, no need to drag my bike through the house, given that all I'm doing is, you know, getting changed and getting my stuff and going to the pool. So I'll just leave it here beside the front door. Not on the street. I was in the house for probably for eight to ten minutes. What the fuck? I said, I don't know. I haven't put up back in ages. Just give me time. And there's nobody on the street. And it's dark. And there's not even any foot traffic. Open the door. Bike's gone. Oh my god, this town! It's actually been taken from outside my front door in an eight minute period of being unguarded. And this bike, by the way, I'd only had for two weeks. This bike was given to me by my brother. Oh my god, this town! And I'm thinking, why? What happened to it? Dublin happened to it. Never forget the true nature of this city. Well, as we've mentioned, Ken has failed miserably in his task to get through all of Alistair Campbell's football thriller, Saturday, Bloody Saturday. So let's talk to somebody who did make it all the way through. Seamus O'Reilly, congratulations. Uh, thanks very much. <laughs> I, uh, I heard it was a bit of a chore. Uh, yeah, it was like uh, feeding porridge directly into the eyeballs at points. Uh, yeah, sort of troubles and 1970s football themed flavoured porridge. Um, what was wrong with it? Um... If you list every single thing about the book, that's every <laughs> single thing that was wrong with it. Why has nobody thought to write this book before? I don't know if anyone's got the wellspring of just fizzing intellect <laughs> that would possibly come up with this as a good idea. The basic the basic overarching premise is that it's 1970s football when men were men and tackles were tackles and uh, there was none of that sort of like fancy muck and uh, also IRA bombings were happening and also... Everyone in the dressing room is talking about the uh, elections that are going on. So there's plenty of little hobby horses for the author and uh, yeah. the co-authors to talk about. I mean, what is the what's the basic setup? I mean, I, I did read the first um, small bit of it, and there's the kind of an alcoholic Scottish football manager, yeah, um, with a hip flask and and a scheming uh, assistant manager who wants to take his job, yeah. Uh, and a bunch of 1970s style footballers. There are. Well, first of all, the the, the kind of the first tranche of the the story is about the actual football team itself. It's an unnamed football team, which is particularly annoying because you start to see all the gymnastic lengths he has to go to to list every single team they're playing, but always refer to the club, the boys, the town. But uh, it, it but it is like a first division. First division, so old first division, so top tier, but probably should be in the top six, but is languishing in mid table. So they've 
basically uh, mortgaged all of their hopes for a great season on this FA Cup run. So you know, there's there are ingredients there for drama. Not, not necessarily that premise is 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 awful, but it's just uh, it has a I'd say a, a reckless attention to detail, um, which means that you have of the four hundred pages, the four hundred pages that this book lasts, <laughs> about two hundred and fifty to two hundred two hundred seventy five are team talks, uh, people uh, having contract negotiations, guys talking about what the guys are like. I mean, even just the repetition that's on store. So there's a guy you're introduced to who's a Welsh guy who's really smart, not like all the other footballers. He's talking about the elections going on and, oh, if Ted Heath goes out, who's going to come in? And you're like, they'll call him the prof because he's so clever. And you're like, okay, right, they're kind of trying to string together a bit of meat on these bones. Yeah. And then like two pages later, two pages later, yeah. you meet a guy who's so, he's so clever in the dressing room, he, they call him Brain. I saw that, yeah. No, I did I did mention that's all right at the very start, yeah. Because he reads books and, and he's also talking about the elections. You're like you're just multiplying your, your stock characters. It doesn't work. It's like, okay, there's six Fonzies. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with any novel that tries to set itself in the world of football is that the, the game itself has no um has no real dramatic quality in in a in written form it's like you know if you say that they scored a dramatic last minute winner it's not a dramatic <laughs> last you know it's just a it's just a fact of the plot you know rather than an actual thing that people can get excited about happening does this book manage to get around that problem uh, in absolutely any way? not no right. uh, it would be further evidence for that argument i think we had um uh, I've previously done the Steve Bruce books and they were really, really terrible, but at least they were entertainingly terrible. So they couldn't even, uh, they didn't even attempt to get across things like um, football as it's played or the backroom sort of uh, negotiations or any of the sort of drama intrigue of like transfers. But or I, I find I find this, that this sounds interesting to me. I mean, yeah. I, would, I would be interested to hear Alistair Campbell's thoughts on how football is played. I mean, can you do, do okay, you have yeah. it? Yeah. Um, you will not be interested uh, because it's really, really dull. Basically, the premise is uh, back then people were used to be tackled really hard and it was great. I mean, there's a there's a comment on the back page from Chopper Harris saying when football was football, uh, a great uh, a great story from my era. Uh, but it's also just uh, Chopper Harris goes off in the well, this is spoiler territory, but Chopper Harris goes I, off. I don't think we need to worry about that. <laughs> Uh, Chopper Harris goes off in the final game, the sort of big sort of te- uh, tentpole game in this in this book, because he's kicked in the bits by uh, uh, the unnamed club's uh, best and sort of hardest player. So it's it's like you, if you can out Chopper, Chopper, that's sure. what he's looking for. That's why he thinks. I mean, also Campbell's a, a Burnley fan. I think he does harken back to those days of you know mud and sort of bloody knees and all that kind of stuff. Uh, on top of that, there are some moments where they talk about sort of a little bit less press attention as well. So like the press being slightly client statish um, is kind of depicted, but not in any way seen as being a bad thing, um, which, you know, for someone who is you know, famously kind of a bit of a spin master, uh, that is quite funny to see. He's like, yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's good when they knew their place. And if they ask too many wrong questions about someone falling out of a nightclub with an underage girl, which is actually a thing that a sympathetic character does in this book. Yeah. Um, but luckily they are able to like lean on the press and say, you're not going to get access to... Somerton Manor, which is their training ground. So what does all this have to do with the, with the Troubles? That's an excellent question. Uh, apart from the uh, incredible title, Saturday Bloody Saturday, um, every once in a while you get sent uh, things to, uh, to look at since I have a reputation for looking through things which are maybe not the um, best in terms of football-related art and culture. This one was like flagged up to me by pretty much every single person I knew because it, it's basically 
the way I described it is it's it's as if a Soviet tweet bot was basically trying to catfish me personally. It's a Northern Irish inflected, terrible football book by a spin doctor kind of character from British political history. So it's an awful lot of my little uh, boxes ticked. Um, I suppose because Alistair Campbell wanted to do something about football, but he also has, he does have a wealth of information and insider uh, details about the peace process. He was there for a long time. Um, it is obviously an interesting subject, just like football is an interesting subject. So putting them together doesn't seem... Uh, like a terribly bad idea. Um, and also he does have insider information. I mean, one of the people thanked in the acknowledgements is Martin McGuinness, right. which is staggering, basically. You know, he thanks, he thanks Tommy Doherty, Johnny Giles, and Martin McGuinness. I mean, just trying to imagine those people all in the same room at one but, time. But, I mean, the manager, the guy, the kind of central character, in it, or the central character, in as far as I managed to, to read, is is like former Rangers. I was like, does, yeah. is, the, is this going to be significant? He's a ra- he's a Rangers man. No, that's I mean, not significant. It's not. It's, it's not. never brought up. He... So uh, we still haven't really talked about anything in the plot, have we? But how, how, <laughs> does, how, how does the terrorist campaign in Northern Ireland... Well, it doesn't, really. So it weaves every once in a while you get... It you doesn't? Not, I'll t- okay, I'll try and explain. So... The th- for every uh, for every ten pages you get of like tedious backroom bickering and pranks of people putting you know cutting up suits and putting DP in people's undercarriage and all that kind of stuff, uh, you then flip to a, ho- a house in Chiswick where three uh, basically sleeper agents for the IRA are basically going about being given their jobs and then they're told to put a bomb here and do this thing. So again, spoilers dovetailing all towards the end. They're all staying they're staying in a hotel where uh, uh, the no, no, newly incoming Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is staying in a hotel and so they put a device in there and then through a few chicaneries of the plot it turns out actually that the coach driver of the football team is a kleptomaniac a guy from Derry actually called Dermot which is quite funny he's depicted as like uh, heavy petting his first wife down by the foil which is a sort of like beautifully nondescript. It could be chilly as well. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Also, Down by the Fall is about as specific a direction as Alistair Campbell has time for in between the 200 pages of like absolutely leaden football plotting. Um, so he takes this thing, he goes into the room to steal stuff, and he takes the device, and then it blows up on the coach, and that's that's basically it. So the whole time you've been watching, you think it's going to blow up in the stadium, or you think it's going to blow up a, a, prime, um, a secretary of state, but in the end it... It doesn't. It blows up a coach, which is one person on it. Um, is is there anything in the book either about the motivations of the plotters, which maybe there isn't much on, given that there apparently isn't much about them in it, or or about uh, football in the nineteen seventies that that would tell you that the author was once the power behind the throne of <laughs> the British Prime Minister's office. Uh, only the fact that he does try to be even-handed to to some degree. I think you can get the sense that he, uh, you can probably get the sense that he was talking to people who would be more sympathetic to sort of the Irish uh, uh, cause, I suppose. So, for example, he has uh, the the main female sleeper agent. Uh, he talks about her upbringing. He talks about things that she's seen. Uh, one of the other guys, his uh, he's like uh, his wife and kid were killed in some shooting sort of thing. So he does put a little bit of meat on the bones. But they also say things like they literally uh, they plan their operation with a six pack of Guinness between them. They sit back and tell stories about how much they hate the Brits. And I'm I'm literally only paraphrasing that very slightly. So there is still a quite slightly cartoonish uh, stick figure drawing version of political intrigue. 
But that's common throughout the entire book. It seems like people are just walking through this book just saying incredibly standard sort of pablum things that each character will say. Last question on the book. I do want to ask you about another topic here, but can you see why some people do like it? Because there's a spectator um, review in front of me here, which I'm just reading through. Alistair Campbell's mix of football and terrorism makes for an accomplished thriller. It goes on to call it a gripping read with an unexpected twist. Okay, well, uh, I wouldn't say it's an unexpected twist, especially not if you've read the back page. And again, notice a gripping combination of football, as we used to know it, and terrorism, as we still know it. And no, I didn't anticipate the explosive climax. That's explosive with Noel. And that came from Delia Smith. <laughs> the, yeah, right, the so explosive climax. if your back cover copy has got Johnny Giles, Ron Harris, Delia Smith, and Bertie Ahern, former Taoiseach of Ireland, <laughs> uh, and they all, a few of them do mention the ending. Um, right. Uh, I suppose it is gripping. You don't want to be too much of a snob because there's, you know, there's horses for courses. Uh, you know, you don't nec- not everything needs to be, you know, a very very good. sort of weighty tome. <laughs> or no, not everything needs to be good. I mean, it it passes the time. No, it doesn't actually. It extends time into its own little scissor dimension. Mike, but, uh, yeah, yeah, Michael O'Neill was in the news last week for talking about Martin O'Neill and the FAI more particularly, and saying they only ever approach one type of player, Catholic. He said of the FAI. Um, Martin O'Neill wasn't happy with this he said that they were going to have a conversation behind the scenes about the whole issue of players declaring for one or the other team and uh, yeah, he's not happy at all what, what do you make of O'Neill's comments? Yeah well I mean um, Mar- Michael O'Neill's <laughs> comments I suppose it's hard to know the exact details because that would seem to be something that's like on an organisational level I think the example he used was Paddy McNair um, and the implication was that because Paddy McNair sounds ostensibly to have uh "Quote unquote Irish, quote unquote Catholic sounding name." How do you it, learn? Do you just is it just something you know? Like that's the thing. It's is it the way? Like if you speak German or French, you just know whether it's like no, der or d or no. You have to wait. And la. You have to wait until Ash Wednesday, and then you just take notes <laughs> when you see what's on their forehead. No, it really is. You're right, though. You don't know. Like and I think, um, I think an awful lot of the uh, discussion on the topic is because because Catholic and Irish identifying are used interchangeably. There are many very sensible and time-saving reasons why that actually makes sense to do. Mm. But in this context, it doesn't really, because it would make a form of sense to only approach Irish-identifying people, Mm. um, or people you knew beforehand were to be Irish-identifying. It's making the leap that a Catholic, quote-unquote, player, Mm. you know, these guys, again, are probably about as religiously observant as, you know, the wall, but that's just the thing. So people who are culturally Irish-identifying, it might make sense to only talk to those people. But once you kind of code it into religious language, then obviously that becomes... Automatic, it becomes sectarian by definition. By definition, but it also... It's because one thing can be signified by two other things, and yeah. they're very messy. Um, the other thing that keeps coming up, I find, as well, is that people in media always refer to the Good Friday Agreement when they say this. Yeah. Um, the Good Friday Agreement has nothing to do with this. So yeah. basically, Irish nationality has been enshrined in dual... Um, the dual nationality since about 1956 yeah. so, and reaffirmed in 2004. So the Good Friday Agreement is a complete misnomer. Yeah, but it, it, the Good Friday Agreement is significant, though, because even though it's not, e- even though legally it doesn't have anything to do with it, in practical terms, it's got everything to do with it. Mm. I mean, this is how you had somebody like, like Neil Lennon, for instance, would have been entitled to play for the Republic of Ireland mm. in strict terms of he could have got an Irish, uh, you know, passport from the Republic of Ireland and, and played for us. But it might have been a bit more trouble than it was worth at that time. Yeah, well, I mean, for him, it actually... Well, no, it, it, for him, for him, maybe not. But but the, the point about it is that I think it was quite difficult for Northern Irish Catholics to mm. to do this, to, to do what a, what a lot of them 
what what, what we've seen a few of them do while you know the the troubles the war is actually yeah. going on and, and also it kind of it does make you wonder about the situation because um there has been anecdotal comment from people in the uh, in the Northern Irish setup, that it, it was maybe a bit of a cold house for some Catholic players. I think Neil Lennon is probably the perfect example. He was like the perfect storm in terms of being a Celtic fan or a Celtic player. Um, and before his captaincy, he was, you know, sent dogs abuse on the pitch and I think bullets in the post and stuff. So, um, although someone like Ma- uh, Martin O'Neill would would probably dispute that. I mean, um, you know, Martin O'Neill obviously played. For, I mean, what was it? What was it that he said? He said he was disappointed in Michael O'Neill for bringing religion into it pointing to the fact that he had played mm. so many times for Northern Ireland. And, you know, people like uh, people like him, I think, have always um, have always sort of tried to... De- or, or play up, rather, the idea that this team, the Northern Ireland team, say, in the, in the 80s, that was very successful, was a great thing for Northern Ireland. And that was one of the only kind of institutions in, you know, in Northern Ireland that, that both sides of the, you know, divide could... Yeah get excited about is that it's is that um true in your opinion it's probably i mean f- i come from Derry, and there it was very much the, if you were an irish identifying person from Derry, to use the euphemism again yeah. uh, a you, gaa watching person from Derry. yes exactly um you would very much be watching uh the irish soccer team rather than the northern irish even in 1986 it probably actually i might be in a little sort of a pocket because i think when northern ireland were a little bit better that might have happened but culturally just as what we were steeped in and then obviously when you get older you get sort of disabused of a lot of these notions i mean for, for example cricket or even rugby for example was never actually a thing that was in Derry city that we would watch now i think that's changed you know these things if you're looking at it at a purely practical level um obviously you can see why michael o'neill doesn't want to lose players and you've got to think, what's the most strategic thing to do? I mean, the IFA have already tried to bring a case. It was the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, they, they have brought this. Um, they've, they've brought this in the past. They've tried to uh, prevent players from being able to switch so easily. And it just can't happen, as you say. It's just uh, this bigger, bigger force to play here. So if you're looking for a gentleman's agreement, I don't know if the best way to get a gentleman's agreement is to go public before a private meeting with the other gentleman in the equation. It's a little bit of an odd one. Maybe he was trying to force Martin O'Neill. But Martin O'Neill made a sensible enough point, I think. He said, what's the point of a gentleman's agreement? I mean, it's a transient thing. I'm going to be gone. He didn't say I'm going to be gone in two years, but he probably will be gone in two years. Michael O'Neill will be gone in a few years. So it's kind of... If Michael O'Neill is looking for some sort of a long-term solution, a handshake with the current Irish manager, Republic of Ireland manager, isn't really worth the huge amount of money. Yeah, also I think um, it demeans the agency of the player because the whole point is that every single example is going to be different because if you have a situation where a player feels in themselves Irish and just only has ever watched the Irish team and feels very passionate about the Irish team or vice versa, feels really passionate about Northern Ireland but maybe is being tapped up by someone else, mm. they're going to make that decision and, I mean, in a sort of wider angle, if you've got a sort of whole cohort of players, north and south, who are as happy to play for either one, depending on which one's a better football team, I think in a wider, more global sense, it's probably pretty good for, you know, the relations between the two places. Because if you've got loads of Northern Irish uh, Protestants, let's say, like Paddy McNair, who would be happy to play for Republic of Ireland, as happy as Northern Ireland, then I think that's something has moved on <laughs> quite a bit. Or, uh, you know, an Alex Bruce kind of character who did the other move. I think back in when I was growing up, there was much less of that um, sort of feeling. There was a bit more of a separation between Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland. And I think um, I think you saw it very much in the last Euros when you know the two sets of fans and everything. There was a real sense of coming together that I think 
yeah, comments like this don't really help and kind of miss the point because individual players will make those decisions for themselves. Yeah, but you know, I mean, it's it, it, the the interesting thing about the comments wasn't so much the, the what he said because because I I know that. There's a lot of people in Northern Ireland who think this, who think it's un- it's unfair. Whatever about the legalities of it, it's basically unfair to take players who've played for them all the way up, or you know, to take is the word that Michael O'Neill used. I mean, you know, as though the player had nothing to do with it, when in fact the player has everything <clears throat> to do with it. The point is, I know that lots of people, you know, uh, who who support the Northern Irish team feel this way and feel that it's it's kind of a bit of a stroke, really. That that's being played on them here by the Republic. Fair enough, but I'm a little bit surprised just to hear somebody like Michael O'Neill, who must be aware of him, he must know this back to front and know why he's saying no, know why what he's saying kind of doesn't make any sense, <laughs> and for still to come out with it, that was kind of a bit a bit strange. And it seems just because I think Martin O'Neill suggested that they'd had a conversation in private where they'd gone over this, so. I mean, was it an unguarded moment, or would just something come to a head? Because it seemed to be, it seemed to come out fully formed, and also, you know, from a point of exasperation. Um, there may be just loads of examples that we don't see about at underage level of kids that we've never heard of. And I can understand from a point of view if you've been, you know, bringing someone up from your system and investing all your uh, your energy and your time and your effort and money into developing these players, and then they they switch. But then I can also see what it's like to be a, a parent in Derry, for example, and have your child the option of going to Dublin to train and to do everything and blah, 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 versus to do it, you know, down the road, effectively. I mean, it's the same thing that probably happens to the Belgian football team and the French football team and, you know, all these other football teams where they've got, you know, players that are brought up in different, in a different uh, code or a different place and then they end up playing for a different national team. It's Yeah, sorry, I'm just looking down. I can see Liam Brady's book there, So Far, So Good, in which he advocates for a United Ireland team. Yeah, yeah, full chapter on And claims that, his, this his, is back in his playing days. Yeah, it claims that his Arsenal teammates, Pat Rice and uh, Pat Jennings and so on, Northern Irish players, would be squarely behind the idea. Um, you know, it, it is something that comes up every so often. I think mainly, usually by people who don't know too much about, <laughs> you know, the Northern Irish team and, and sort of uh, its importance for the community that supports it and how they would feel yeah. about you know, being joined together with the Republic. And the fact is that we actually kind of already have a United Ireland team for anybody who wants to play <laughs> in it. That's what we actually yeah, have. We do. We've, got a, we've got an elective one, yeah. Yeah, so are you concerned that maybe we're not going to have that for much longer, given the way everything is everything is going uh, in, in Northern Ireland? I, I mean, there's a, lot, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of bad things happening at the moment. Yeah, and I think particularly, you know, I do always end up talking about the border because my dad literally lives on that border still to this day. Um, but uh, it does seem like the sort of detente and the sort of like flowering goodwill and sort of like just the complete absence of separation between the two places might have gotten a little bit frostier in the last couple of years because a lot of the rhetoric is having to be hardened um, and so are the borders. Um, but I think I think something like United Ireland football team would be very, very interesting as an experiment, if you could call it anything else other than a United Ireland football team, because it's just so loaded. I don't know what you'd call it, you know, the Hibernian Warriors or something, you know, something really cheesy, like an Ireland's call, 
yeah. for the team. That yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Thing. Yeah. Listen, Seamus O'Reilly, great stuff. Uh, you people can hear more book reviews in your own podcast. That's right. I'm going to plug away the Reducer podcast. Um, I, I just, I really, really need people to listen to it now because I can't keep doing these uh, things. They're just awful. So um, <laughs> I, I might, I might just go down in a big sort of like fiery death. So this will be my testament after um, just killing my brain with terrible, terrible rubbish. So you can get us on the Reducer pod. Uh, you're, on Twitter and yeah you're talking about the book there as opposed to your appearance on this podcast oh no no, no, yeah, no, 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 no just, yeah just wanted to clear yeah, that up just there <laughs> uh, yeah after we did Steve Bruce's books we've done Dennis Wise's autobiography and a few other bits Great. so please do check that thank you that might be you know aiming for utopia but that is the way I am I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me Oh, Richie, God. how are we feeling this morning? I just watched the goal set to the Titanic music and it really works. Oh, it really, really works. I think this is the most fun we're ever going to have in a podcast. Let me tell you, you're only getting this because you're a former player of mine and <laughs> there's no fourth time lucky, let me tell you. My father thought that, you know, I was a disgrace and an embarrassment, didn't allow me to come back home. And this is a 17 years old and we just made the semi-finals of Wimbledon. Fraser and Ali and another incarnation when they were both young and I guess I was too. <laughs> Reverend Jesse Jackson, you're very welcome to the show. Well, the few people resist publicly, he uh, cast a light to lit up our pathway. 30 million watched the fight. What? Yes, that's true. Um, I was better known in Africa than I was in that's Ireland. unbelievable. He threw a hard trial, I think at David Beckham, <laughs> uh, in the, is that right? No. So I had this weird thing where I was always the same weight as my age. <laughs> Holy shit, Kevin Murphy! It's U.S. Murphy. Round of applause for U.S. Murphy. Yes, that's him. Kios, right upstairs at Kios. Kill us, everyone, but that's yeah. fine. <laughs> oh my oh, word! Oh, tell us, talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened, but talk us through it. Oh, just saying. Sig Thorson is the old. <laughs> 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 Oh my god. Is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. It's about 12. <laughs> Everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No, really. What happened? What happened? It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Just some of the highlights there of the first five years of second captains. Now the prospect of uh, United Ireland, believe it or not, pops up in one of our five for five interviews. Not just the United Irish football team, Ken, a United Ireland. But which one of our amazing interviews, interviewees brings it up? Is it A, Michael Checker, B, Vincent Brown, C, Paul Kimmage, D, Lynn Cox, or E, Ken Loach? Don't answer that. 
Have a think about it. You're going to be hearing these interviews. You're going to be hearing these interviews. I think it's pretty obvious. Think, yeah, I yeah. think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> oh, you're going to be hearing all these interviews over the next few weeks. I cannot wait to bring you all these amazing conversations. Really looking forward to it. All the rugby analysis will be available for our second Monday pod this afternoon. The Irish team might have to stay focused on the Grand Slam, but the rest of us can all at least bask in the glory of another Six Nations title win for a day or so anyway before thoughts turn to Twickenham mm. and so on. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks for meeting again. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Thanks for listening. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.